Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a prime ministerial library and museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving prime minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome, and today we have a very special guest, Reverend Tim Costello, who is one of Australia's most respected community leaders, and he will be well known to many of you for being the Chief Executive of World Vision Australia for 13 years. He's now Director of Ethical Voice, the Executive Director of Micra Australia, a Senior Fellow for the Centre for Public Christianity and an advocate for gambling reform. Welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast, Tim. Great way to spend the afternoon. Thank you, Georgina. <laughs> well, we are in lockdown Melbourne or Greater Melbourne and there's not too many too many things we can do within our within our various uh, radii. Infernal, infernal lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and now we're in the most lockdown city in the world. We should be really good at it, filling our days, not infecting each other. But look, Tim, you have written extensively and spoken extensively about Robert Menzies and his contribution to, um, I guess, a significant contribution to Australia's reputation, past as it may have been, as a very generous foreign aid donor. And you've been, you've sadly observed the decline in our generosity since the Menzies era. I think you've written that Robert Menzies in his final years of government's his governments was, were contributing 0.51% of gross national income to foreign aid, and a lot of that was through the Colombo program. And now we're about at 0. 0.2, 0.22% of gross national income. We are a much richer country, of course. In economic terms, we're, we're also a, a much bigger country in terms of our growth relative to other countries too, the 12th largest economy in the world. And yet our generosity when it comes to aid has declined so dramatically. Let's start by talking about why do you think Robert Menzies and his government were so generous in the 1960s when it came to foreign aid? Yeah, so uh, I, I know that the figures I quote about Menzies are right because uh, both the ABC and RMIT have fact-checked me, Georgina, <laughs> on this. Keeping you honest, Tim, and, keeping you honest. <laughs> important. And when I said um, Menzies' aid was highest under Sir Robert Menzies, 0.51% of GDP, so imagine that as 50 cents in every $100 of national income. Now we're down to 19 cents, so from 50 cents down to 19. Some, probably those on the left, didn't believe me. It was such a shock to them that... Uh, uh, he was Bob Menzies who was the most generous. In fact, the biggest cut to aid after Bob Menzies first happened with Bob Hawke. Right. And then uh, the next biggest cut was uh, Tony Abbott and uh, Joe Hockey's 2014 budget. They took $1.5 billion out of aid and that has left us last of OECD countries in, in generosity. So as to the question of uh, why was Menzies so generous, I think it actually came from Menzies' understanding of both his own faith and the responsibility that um, you are blessed to be a blessing, let's put it that way. 
Menzies had a Presbyterian father and described himself as a simple Presbyterian, I actually have a theory that his Methodist mother had much greater influence on him. Uh, He went to the Methodist school Wesley and uh, uh, often spoke of John Wesley. Wesley said, work as hard as you can, save as much as you can, give away as much as you can. And I think that Wesleyan Methodist tradition actually explained foreign aid. And he often put it in terms of uh, a good neighbour policy. That's an allusion to the Good Samaritan. And he said uh, that Australia has to be a good neighbour and equipping our neighbours with material aid would both help them prosper and strengthen them to resist the strange, mad doctrines of communism. So I think there was an intersection there of geopolitics and generosity. But he certainly was very clear about the uh, Christian moral principles. Um, uh, Just to quote him, he said, Australian aid to its Asia-Pacific neighbours should be motivated primarily by love for one's neighbour, and be the expression of a true understanding of what is involved in being your brother's keeper. He reminded Australians that they belong to a prosperous nation of free people and must not turn aside from their neighbour. They must look to their neighbour and say, is that neighbour coming along too? Not just as individuals, but as societies and nations. Otherwise, each nation for itself, the devil take the hindmost is uh, a terrible way to think. So I, um, you know, have tried to remind gently Georgina liberals today that they should be true Menzians. They should recover (laughs) the Menzian spirit. Uh, I had um, a a fabulous discussion a few weeks ago with Steve Chavura, who's written a book called The Forgotten Menzies, and he's, he's really deconstructing some of the familiar tropes about Menzies, you know, obviously founder of the Liberal Party in 1944, bringing together a, a liberal tradition and a conservative tradition and, and and chose the name liberal because he didn't want to be a conservative party. He wanted the Liberal Party he was forming to be progressive. And John Howard has spoken about this in the past. There are these two broad churches in the Liberal Party and people seem to co-opt Menzies to suit whatever side they fall on. But Steve Chavura in his book with Greg Mellish, The Forgotten Menzies, he actually digs a bit deeper and he talks about Menzies as a cultural Puritan, as a, which was a tradition out of the, the 19th, early 20th century coming out of the UK predominantly, but also a British idealist. And that sense of So the cultural Puritan was someone who had those strong, I guess, Presbyterian ethics of hard work, a good education, looking after oneself, but also that humanitarian sense of really strong sense of responsibility for one's neighbour, for the fellow man and woman. The British idealist is this sort of sense that there's there's so much more to life than than just individuals that we are we all linked by a sort of a common humanity of God. He obviously had strong Christian beliefs from his upbringing, and his father a lay preacher, um, a Presbyterian, but who was a lay preacher in a Methodist church. Steve Chavura in his book takes a very much more nuanced approach to to where Menzies was coming from. That it wasn't he wasn't a utilitarian. He wasn't a um, 
a Burkean conservative particularly, he, he, he adopted strands of those thinking, that thinking, but he, he did reject that Benthamite utilitarianism and he took what I think many modern liberals today, capital L liberals, would think was a, was a fairly sort of socially democratic view of, you know, there was full employment in Australia a hugely generous immigration policy and refugee policy. We we took the, the highest per capita number of refugees under Menzies, of which he was extremely proud, wasn't he, Tim? I think he, there's, a, there's a wonderful quote that you have in an article you wrote recently that from Menzies on the opening of World Refugee Year in Australia in 1959 where he says... It is a good thing that Australia should have earned a reputation for a sensitive understanding of the problems of people in other lands, that we should not come to be regarded as a people who are detached from the miseries of the world. I know that we will not come to be so regarded, for I believe that there are no people anywhere with warmer hearts and more generous impulses. That was from our Prime Minister in 1959. But uh, you wrote recently that we don't have such a generous reputation when it comes to refugees and of course with the withdrawal from Afghanistan by the United States and of course Australia as well we've been left with a a a very difficult decision which which actually from your perspective wasn't a difficult decision we should have been very generous with our with our Afghan friends and and let many more in than we we have done so. Yes so I haven't read the forgotten Menzies but in my own way I'm uh in that Finn Review article trying to uh, capture forgotten Menzies, uh, the, the uh, generosity to refugees. And in that speech in 1959, he actually said, on a per capita basis, Australia has taken more refugees than any other country in the world. And he was very proud of that. Yeah. It wasn't, oh, dear, we're at risk. It was, this is who we are and we can celebrate it uh, and haven't ch- times changed. I think Menzies was really opposed to utilitarianism. And why I think that's interesting, Georgina, is that as a virtue, uh, you call it idealist, but as I call it a virtue philosopher, that there are virtues that you don't compromise just by cost-benefit analyses. And there are fundamental rights. You know, Bentham, the the founder of utilitarianism, said rights, they're nonsense on stilts. There's no such thing. Menzies believed in rights. Menzies believed in virtues. And I think that's very significant in Australian history because the time that Australia was founded, utilitarianism was dominant. That's why in Australia uh, just about every public policy decision is uh, resolved without us thinking in terms of cost-benefit analyses. We're obsessed with cost-benefit analyses. Greatest happiness for the greatest majority. Whereas America was founded much more with John Locke, John Stuart Mill, liberty. And when you go to America, you see frozen into the DNA is that idea of liberty. Yeah, yeah. Australia, utilitarianism. And I see Menzies as a very important figure because he said refugees have rights. They have dignity. That dignity cannot be traded just in terms of our happiness or whether they're useful, um, yes, they were useful as it turned out to Australia building, but he had a profound sense of that dignity. 
So I think uh, the authors of the Forgotten Menzies have, have stumbled onto something there, which is quite countercultural to the the DNA frozen into Australia's character utilitarianism that, in my view, leads to a shallowness and a um, a political lens rather than a lens of principle. What is principle here in terms of our duties to our neighbour, to refugees? So you mentioned Mike Hall. Uh, Micah Australia uh, got together 40 pastors, ministers, priests and Alex Hawke's electorate wrote to him, had a meeting with him, said, we support 20,000 additional refugees coming. Alex Hawke is very good. He actually said... Yes, I think we can get over the past debates of refugees. We've talked now to lots of Liberals and they're saying absolutely we should do this. The amazing thing about this coalition, uh, Georgie, is it's united the church. So from the Australian Christian lobby to left-wing parts of the church, all of us are calling for 20,000 additional refugees. Now, you very rarely see the church united. You might have noticed <laughs> they, will, they will disagree on everything. Sure. <laughs> uh, and, and here I think Bob Menzies, with his Christian faith, would be uh, cheering from his grave because, as he said in 1959, this was a distinctive of both his convictions, his virtue, his belief in fundamental rights over and against just what's politically practical or win an election, which is really a utilitarian approach. Yeah, it's fascinating to reflect on that. And I, I think we could pick it apart a bit too. So Menzies did have a strong focus on the individual. He eschewed utilitarianism, but he, he did place a strong emphasis on the dignity of the individual but but insofar as the individual was um, was there to be independent of of imposition from government or or a sort of a a community that ignores the the needs and wants and desires and hopes of an individual to pursue a prosperous life a, a full life. How do you think that Menzies' view of that role of the individual and but then there sense of responsibility to a community, not subservience to a community, but sense of responsibility to a community comes out in this in this um, generosity towards foreign aid and, and generosity to, to taking in refugees, which, as, as you said, is a, it's a fundamental Christian virtue to provide succour to, to people in need, to, to people fleeing oppression, like, G, like Jesus himself and his family fled oppression. Yeah, I, I think Menzies had a uh, wonderful balance. Uh, remembering that Cold War times, the um, view that a collective uh, state could define what's best for you, I think Menzies rightly emphasised, no, it's the responsibility of the individual. But when he talked about uh, the individual, it was interesting that he immediately went to his Christian character things and he talked about selflessness, courage, responsibility, generosity. So it wasn't selfish individualism. In fact, he had often decried that. He, he often talked about the sheer vice of selfishness where selfish individualism takes over. He talked about in the community, the individual is at their best sacrificing for the community. 
it's that idea of John Wesley, the Methodist, uh, work hard, save a lot, give away a lot. There was this strong sense of freedom for and you know, I think the John Stuart Mill tradition has been bastardised to understand freedom as only freedom from. Mm. So the individual is free from all restraints. I think Menzies understood a, a Christian view that had said it's not just freedom from, it's freedom for. Freedom from, from is just a negative liberty. Freedom for is a positive liberty. It's to actually see the community flourish and to benefit, but not flourishing by robbing the individual of uh, responsibility where the state takes over. And I totally agree with the Menzian view that the state should never do for people what they can do for themselves. Whenever the state does that, I think it cuts the nerve of that uh, that dignity. It, it's interesting you raised that, Tim. Menzies' economic legacy, and I've had Henry Ergas, the Australian economist, on the podcast talking about Menzies' economic legacy and that strong focus that Menzies and his governments had on full employment. Now, his offering to the Australian people at the time in the 50s and 60s was not um, a big welfare state. In fact, the the welfare on offer was 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 minuscule compared to these times. There was child endowment and certain, obviously, allowances for pension and and, uh, healthcare support for for, um, retirees, but but it was limited. But what you got was a job and you got lots of jobs. You got any job you wanted and uh, the economic policies are quite different from the, the, the sort of free market yes. policies of the Hawke-Keating and then How- Howard Costello eras, they were about ensuring that we had a protected economy, that um, there was a, a system of wage arbitration to, to keep wages in check. And, you know, Australian industry was supported to, to provide those jobs. But it was a social contract, wasn't it, that you, you look after yourself because we make sure that you can get a job because there are lots of jobs. But your responsibility is to yourself and, and of course, to your neighbour, that sense of, of strong Christian duty that was for your community. But I wanted to pick up that, that sort of Cold War context that you mentioned, Tim, that, that Menzies was operating in. I mean, it's so hard, I think, for us to imagine how scary it would have been and how real the threat was. Menzies has experienced two world wars by this stage, the Great War, and then the Second World War, thousands upon thousands of Australians have lost their lives and uh, they've come out of, out of the Second World War in 1945. Menzies came into government in 1949 for the second time. But you've got this Cold War and that sense of, of a nuclear war on Australia's doorstop, doorstep, on anyone's doorstep, was, was real. And that, the, that sense of the, the socialist, communist influence coming from our north, always for Australia, the threat is from our north, of course, that would have played into his concerns. And, and as you said, when it came to, to our foreign aid policy and our, our refugee policies, yes, it was about doing the right thing, um, being, thinking of our neighbour, being the good Samaritan. But, but it was also, there was also geopolitics there, wasn't there, to, to stave off the threat of, of communism. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, much has been written with uh, ANZUS's 70th birthday about uh, the ANZUS Treaty being struck and uh, Menzies being thrilled, although uh, it was Spencer who, uh, of course, pulled it off. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, 
you know, I, I've lived this in my own family. Uh, my maternal grandparents, who are strong liberals, knew Bob Menzies, Presbyterians, yeah. Scottish and English descent, and when they opened the curtains in the morning when I stayed with them as a kid and looked out the window, I know that they longed to see the spires of Edinburgh or London. But they're more likely to see Dili or Jakarta. <laughs> and this strong sense in a Cold War time of a European outpost uh, a long way from America and Europe, certainly Britain, and uh, the Red Peril, the threat. It's very hard for us today to understand just how real that was. If I've just finished reading Ben McIntyre's book, uh, The Spy and the Traitor, about uh, the greatest uh, Russian defectors to MI6, Oleg, Oleg Godovsky. Worth reading if you want to understand just the extraordinary stakes at play in Cold War. It's simply extraordinary. Um, uh, what I find interesting, Georgie, is that in... In the midst of the war in Britain, the Beveridge Report in 1942 uh, said, we have been through two great wars like Menzies had. We've got to come up with a future that really gives people who have made terrible sacrifices a stake. And they came up with what we'd call here socialist universal welfare system reforms. Menzies in '49 did it a different way. He said rather than that massive British almost socialist uh, welfare reforms, I will strengthen and fund the existing charities, whether they be the Ch uh, Salvation Army or the Catholic Church. or uh, And so we, we today have this unusual situation, and it's, it's one of Menzies' child, children that we don't know, where of the uh, 25 biggest charities in Australia, 21 a Christian faith-based. World so Vision much. that I led is one of them. Yeah. In America, of the 25 biggest charities, only 10 are Christian faith-based. In Britain, only six are Christian faith-based. Menzies literally said, because then it was Christian charities that were dominant in the landscape, rather than a big beverage-type reform, Clement Attlee-type reform, we will strengthen what is existing here and that landscape continues here in terms of the safety net. And then Menzies did the same thing and you'll be very familiar with this with finally state aid to Catholic and non-church schools. Yes. So we now have, I don't know, 30% plus of uh, children who go to non-state schools. You know, America's about 10%, Britain about the same. Again, it's a Menzies legacy. So I think there are lots of areas to explore, whether it's charity or education, but it came from a faith perspective in Cold War times of not just trusting big state universal reforms that uh, we still we, we have set Australia up in the landscape that exists today. Yeah, that's um, absolutely fascinating. I don't think I, I uh, appreciated his legacy to faith-based charities. Um, was there was there something in his policy prescriptions at the time that allowed the faith-based charities to, to flourish as opposed to how, uh, how they have um, operated in the US and the UK? Yeah, but he, he basically uh, said... They will be the partners with government in, de in, in delivering welfare and funded them. Yeah. 
Of course, there was the tax deductibilities mm. and uh, the incentives. Now, a lot of them were churches. People still today say, why shouldn't churches pay rates and taxes? And But these were Menzian decisions to say, actually, let's devolve it to the lowest level, subsidiarity, rather than a big state government. They're already on the ground. Those Church of England, now Anglican or Catholic or uh, Baptist welfare groups, let's let's encourage them, fund them, let them prosper. That was that was very different to Britain, very very different to a, an NHS and all the big reforms that came out of Beveridge. Oh, that's uh, yes, it's it's so interesting that he he's always taken that uh, anti-statist approach, but empowered empowered individuals or, or individual organisations to, to fulfil their sense of duty and responsibility. I wondered if we could, Tim, move on to a reflection on, on how successive Liberal governments have lived up to, to the Menzian tradition of generosity to, to refugees and, and also um, when it comes to foreign aid the Fraser government, the the Howard government and even the present-day government, these are governments that that, that profess to, to uphold the, the Menzian tradition through the Liberal Party of Australia, the party that Menzies founded. But, of course, each each of these governments has the flavour of their particular leader and the, and the ministers in charge. Um, do you have a, a, a sense of, of an evolution, of a distancing or a, or a, a continuity, Tim? Yeah, so uh, look, I've got the car engine running uh, now, Georgie, and <laughs> I might have to make a quick escape. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I think, um, you know, the question that genuinely puzzles me, Georgie, is why the Liberal Party has not seen itself as the natural party of social justice. I think the Menzies tradition set, it, set them up to be that and I think they have failed that and I think they, they, they should be reflecting on why. I think uh, for, for some on the, on the centre-right, that, that term, social justice, it seems to be in lockstep with, with the left of politics, which is, of course, when you, you, you know, yes. rewind 70 years ago, Menzies was the leader of a party of social justice. So he was a, a huge proponent of issues relating to social justice, you know, lifting people out of um, their circumstances into better circumstances and making sure that, that um, every, every individual had an opportunity to be the best selves if they so chose and to look after each other Absolutely. too uh, and to look after those, those in difficult circumstances abroad. But but there's something totally, about I, I that think... terminology that is uh, it's um, is it an evolution of the the liberal capital L liberal ideology as it has gone on that it's uh, eschewed those sort of social justice principles and and moved towards a, a that more Benthamite utilitarian perspective. Yeah, I, I think it has, and uh, I think it, it, most liberals would be surprised to know that Bob Menzies was. Uh, president of the student Christian movement at uh, Melbourne University. The student Christian movement is very different to the evangelical or the uh, Christian unions on campuses. People might say that they're both Christian. No. The SCM and the uh, evangelical unions are the Sunni and Shia of the Christian world. Uh, And (laughs) the, uh, the 
The SCM that Menzies was in believed, it, oh, it led very strongly to the social gospel, but it, it believed that you, you couldn't just have individual salvation. It had to be good for society. And Menzies stood in that social justice, social Christian movement tradition, and I think most liberals would be surprised about that. I think uh, Fraser certainly did, uh, you know, 50,000 Vietnamese, and that was Fraser's extraordinary contribution in the Menzian tradition and aid was maintained at high levels. As I say, it was Hawke following Fraser who cut aid and uh, Labor often get the social justice tick. Uh, there's a very different story that Liberals have surrendered here, Georgie. Yeah. They have surrendered it. Yeah. Um, why, why did Hawke cut aid, though, Tim? Oh, uh, spend money on marginal seats, win elections, you know, very utilitarian approach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Political expediency. And yeah. <laughs> I, I remember Bob Mullen, who was uh, president, I think, of the Labor Party when Hawke cut aid, ringing me. Uh, this was back in, oh, was it 86, 87, I forget the year and saying, why aren't the churches speaking up? Uh, how could Hawke do this? So there were elements of Labor that were very distressed about what Hawke had done then. But I think the Libs then had moments. Julie Bishop with Kevin Rudd again set the target of, that was bipartisan, of getting back to 0.5. Then in came Abbott and hockey. I knew I was in trouble before the 2014 budget, Georgina, when Joe Hockey rang me out of the blue. Right. And he said, I'm a World Vision supporter. I just want to say you're doing a great job. Uh, I donate to you. And I thought, oh, no, why is Joe ringing me? And, of course, in that May 2014 budget, slashed aid by $1.5 billion, uh, just cut it, and we've never really recovered. I had hope for um, Scott Morrison. His maiden speech, as you would know in Parliament, was I've come into Parliament to both increase aid, to make poverty history, 5,000 African kids shouldn't be dying each day of malnutrition in his maiden speech, but we've never, we've seen no restoration of aid. Uh, and Abbott was sort of drag kicking and screaming, but he got there to 12,000 Syrian refugees. That was really good. As we've said to Alex Hawke and lots of libs with Afghanistan, we've had 20 years of a military engagement in Afghanistan, um, uh, nearly over $10 billion or more of uh, military spend. We have a responsibility. Let's do at least what Abbott did. Let's at least take 12,000. Canada's taking 40,000. They'd announced 20,000. They've just upped it now to 40,000. America, an additional 120,000. Let's pull our weight. We still don't know if this is going to happen. Now, I am in no doubt, Georgie, what Bob Menzies would do. Yeah. I have absolutely no doubt what he would do. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I, and I, but I, I want to um, explore why it is that governments have reduced aid and and haven't been as generous as Bob Menzies was to refugees. Is it that the Australian public has changed? I mean, of course, there's always the budget bottom line and getting back into black. And you know, we want a budget surplus, not a deficit. I, I get that. I get that. And that's 
that's important and, you know, aid becomes an easy, there's no constituency really out there that's voting. Foreign policy and aid, unfortunately, as much as, you know, my background's in foreign policy, um, I'd like to think it was important and it's hugely important, of course, for uh, for prosperity and peace and stability, but they, they don't tend to change votes so much, those issues. Does the Australian public have a different view in 2021 to, to aid and, and refugees than it did in, in 1959 when Bob Menzies made his speech on World Refugee Day? Uh, no. So uh, the Australian public in its private giving has remained just as generous. And uh, I, I was the recipient of that at World Vision where we were raising over $400 million a year. And on refugees, yes, the, the view of the Australian public has changed, but on aid, not. Um, and if, if you remember that uh, the, the world agreed, governments would give 0.7% of uh, their G, gross national product to aid, and the public would give 0.3% so that 1% of developed countries would go to aid. That was always the formula. Australia never got to 0.7. The Brits are there, Scandinavians, Dutch, lots of others. We never got there. Menzies was the only one who got close at 0.5%. The, the Australian public have continued their side of the bargain, not Australian governments, and now it's down to, well, 0.19, 19 cents in $100 from Menzies, 50 cents. Um, what's changed is really the utilitarianism, Georgie. Uh, Richard Nixon put it best. He said there ain't no votes in aid. The people who benefit from aid don't vote. So aid only ever could be maintained by bipartisan leadership. Once it started to become a race to the bottom and Hawke in the modern era started it, uh, then that breach of bipartisanship around aid means though aid always ranks when you ask Australians should we be generous in the top ten issues, there's no saliency around the vote. No. It has. It requires bipartisanship leadership, and my aim, and Micah's aim, is to get back to a bipartisanship. This shouldn't be uh, poverty uh, up for electoral politics. You know how many how many votes are in it. Once once you get to that, we're lost. It's the same as you know with diplomacy. You can't you can't run diplomacy just on what votes are in it. Uh, <laughs> they sometimes. People attempted to. So that that is my um, assessment of what's happened. Menzies said of utilitarianism that it was a Frankenstein monster which may yet destroy us. I hope I hope he's not true, even if it still remains prevalent in Australian policy making. It's instinctive, isn't it? I guess utilitarianism. It's an easy easy way to make a decision, but um, but it, it certainly wasn't the way Menzies, with his very, very strong set of principles, ran his government. And um, I think MPs and decision makers today should um, should read, read more deeply about what it was that made the Menzies government so successful and a, and a good government that was a government of, um, of deep, deep principles and not least that sense of huge responsibility to one's fellow man or woman and uh, and not just Australians, not not just our fellow Australians, but uh but people all across the world. And you know, in a year and a half of of a 
global pandemic where we we have been pretty introspective, I think, you know, very much concerned about our COVID numbers, our hospitalizations, our death rates. You know, hopefully 2022 becomes a year when we reflect on what we can do for the rest of the world because there are going to be many, many countries with low or almost no vaccination rates and this is an opportunity for Australia to take great leadership, especially with all that AstraZeneca we haven't used. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think Menzies would have read this situation right. He would have understood that selfish individualism just looks at us, that actually we exist for others. We have to be responsible. We have to work hard, but we exist for others. And what, they, what the virus, an invisible virus, has shown us is that the whole world is biologically connected. Yeah. And none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And where do the the mutating variants that will trick the first generation of vaccine come from? Unvaccinated poor nations. Yeah. So I think Menzies, uh, without understanding COVID, intuitively understood that connection, uh, Georgina. Mm, mm. Yes, I I agree, Tim. Tim, it's been uh, an absolute delight to talk to you today on Afternoon Light. And uh, I really look forward to seeing the progress of your work with Micah and uh, let's hope for a positive decision for um, our friends in Afghanistan and uh, that our government can have some generosity of heart in the spirit of Bob Menzies. Thank you, Tim. A pleasure. Great to be with you. The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.